Welcome to the Lucky Let Cord Podcast, a Tennis Now production sponsored by Tennis Express. I'm your host, Chris Otto. Happy to be with you on a very special day, the first day of July. Not only that, it's also the day before Wimbledon. Main draw action begins tomorrow, July 2nd at SW19. And the party will begin. we got a special Wimbledon preview edition today on the podcast. Two special guests. One is Brad Gilbert of ESPN. The other, Reem Abuleil of Sport360 and Wimbledon.com. Don't want to bore you with my voice anymore. Let's get straight to interview number one with Brad Gilbert. I'm here with uh, former world number four with 500 ATP wins, over 20 titles, husband, father, dog lover, Warriors fanatic, uh, super coach, Andy Roddick, Andre Agassi. What, what, what did I leave out, Brad? Just a tennis lifer and uh, in, enjoying another day and another year here at Wimbledon. Yeah, fantastic. And thanks for taking some time to speak with me. Um, before we get to the draw, let's backtrack a little bit. We watched a lot of the grass season play out. I wanted to get your take on what you saw from the king of grass, Roger Federer, both at Stuttgart and Holly. What did you think of his form leading up? Um, you know, we saw him struggle in a few matches, but, you know, got through quite a few of them. Um, you know, it's such a difficult thing to do is take or know to take a few months off the way he does. Um, and then last year, you know, he lost first round. Stuttgart, you know, wins Halle. But, you know, it's all about for him. It's not about Stuttgart and Halle. It's about what he's going to do here. And at one month shy of 37, he's still the favorite, which is incredible. And he's been so successful, you know, in the last six slams, winning three. Yeah. Fantastic. He's Yeah, he's been unbelievable. I was surprised that he lost to Borna Cioric. Um Real quick, a take on Borna. I mean, he's not known for grass. He was 2-7 and seven on grass heading into that tournament. Um, how is he able to play so well? Does it have to do maybe with his coach, Ricardo Piatti, or is he just maturing as a player? Um, well, first of all, when Shorich played Fed in Indian Wells, you know, he was up a set and a break. He was up a break in the third. He played really well there. So I think after a couple of years of the expectations were really high of him, uh, especially even at 18. You know, people were talking about him even before Zverev. Um, so I think now he's finally in a good place. Uh, new coach has helped him, new team, um, and he's playing better than ever. Um, the courts looked a little bit harder and maybe a little better bounce, um, but playing with a lot more confidence, that's for sure. Um, I, you know, I'd be very interested to see if he can, you know, have a nice run here one more. Yeah, and speaking of that, we've seen the draws. We've had about a day to digest them. And um, I wonder what you think of Fed's draw. It looks like he would potentially meet George in the round of 16. Then he's got maybe a match with Anderson Query, which I see to be a little tricky. And then I think a bad part of Federer's draw is that he's actually in Chilich's half. Um, People argued with me on this, saying that no, Federer doesn't have a bad draw. But I thought it was a little bit tricky. Um. I mean, if you look at the quarters, I mean, he doesn't have the easiest quarter. Um, we've seen, remember in 2017, when he had a brutal draw in Australia, he went through it no problem. On this surface, um, and obviously, you know, the next 10 days, the weather's supposed to be in the mid-80s. Court's going to be harder, a lot firmer, so much, much better bounce. Um, I think it, that, you know, you look at the draw, sometimes you can look at a draw 
and, and it can be really difficult, and all of a sudden it can open up. Guys can lose. Things can happen. So the thing that you you look and think about most is just find a way every other day to win three sets and move on. Um, I mean, you know, sometimes I wish I could have an easier draw, a more difficult draw. It's hard to – you don't play in the draw. You just play it. Mm-hmm. And And – Speaking of the draw, do you did you did a couple things stick out with you when you looked at them? A couple of players maybe that you think maybe could do better than you thought before the draw came out. Anything you saw? You know, always when people ask me on Twitter, they blow me up about <laughs> can this guy win? What's he going to do? And I always say, let me see the draw. Um, and and obviously you learn a lot about the draw. You know, some of the dangerous floaters. That, you know, what is a section loaded? Um, I mean, first thing that for me, uh, when, when I'm looking here at the draw, I look at, you know... Feel free if you yeah, want. Yeah, at, at Rafa's section. Right. Because, you know, you look in, does he have a huge server early in the tournament? Where he all of a sudden, you know, the last few years has struggled in the first week. So, to me, he comes in with no grass court play. Um, but it's two tournaments for Rafa. If he can get through that first week get some confidence going the second week, and the warmer weather will be really good for him. I actually thought last year, had he got through Mueller, he was going to make the final. Um, I picked him this year after looking at the draw to win it. Did you? Yeah, that's a that's a crazy pick. He hasn't. Uh, so that's and you're right. His draw shapes up nice. He has players that are pretty good on grass. Kukushkin and um, uh, he could play Zverev. He could play Misha Zverev. But but again, the key thing you mentioned, I think, is the big servers. The the guys that have knocked him out have been the Kyrios, the Dustin Brown guys that just go amped and just get take him out yeah, with the and serve. Jules Mueller last year served unbelievable. Um, but I do think he was. I watched him practice yesterday with Kevin Anderson. So he's making you know conscious effort to practice with big servers and the one thing that i really admire most about rafa on the surface is he tries to do things differently he tries to return closer he won't run around the forehand nearly as much he'll, he'll be a little more aggressive try to hit the ball a little flatter so i think everything that he does he tries to point to really getting better the second week one thing i really noticed yesterday it, the weather is so warm. Actually, the grass looked like it was longer. Um, so maybe they're trying to protect the grass before they cut it short tonight. Right, yeah. Well, And, and he mentioned that in his presser, by the way, that he felt like it was a little longer. Maybe that's good for him mentally. Huh? So, wow, interesting pick, the Nadal pick. You might be all alone in that one. Um, I think I was the only one that did it on the ESPN pick. Sometimes, hey, you know, sometimes, you know, there's no, like, you, you know, it's not like, uh, you know, I had some method of, you know, or look, I just kind of thought, you know what, maybe we're due for a little change. Well, nobody's won it other than the big four since 2003. So, I mean, I'd love to see, you know, a young player make a deep run or even a young player win this tournament. But considering that Fed or Rafa won last six, their best streak since 05, the French through the 2007 U.S. Open. So... It's pretty amazing that 10 years ago they played that epic match. They're still one in two seats. It's, it's ridiculous. And that's, that's a good stat, by the way, about the domination of those two. Um, you mentioned young guys. Real quick, Tsitsipas, 0-1 lifetime. He's searching for his first Wimbledon win. Shap- Shapovalov, same thing. And George is 1-3 at Wimbledon. Any, do you see anything in those young kids, that uh, any potential on this surface? Well, um Sispitas and Denis Shapovalov, both one-handed backhands, both explosive games. I mean, I think in a few years, I think Denis can be really good on this surface. Um, 
you know, both of them have played limited. I mean, Dennis obviously won this in the juniors. Um, and, and Stefan, he probably hasn't played a lot on the surface. But I think both those guys have made great progress. And I think they both have top ten. And I, I think Dennis can win slams. I really do. I think he's got explosive talent um, and a lot of firepower for a guy that's maybe six foot, 165 pounds. Got a very good serve, moves well, explosive for him. I like his upside a lot. I, I know he struggled a little bit on grass, but he's got like talk about the draw. That guy got a brutal little section. His entire section. Is stacked. It's got Chardy as an opener. Yeah, uh, Chardonnay. Chardy's been playing really well. And if I'm not mistaken, is that to play the winner of Murray and Payer? Right. Very tough section. It is. And I picked as my dark horse, I picked the young Greek player as my dark horse. Yeah, he's, there's a lot to like about his game. He's in the same section with Dimitrov Isner. I felt like. You know, and Dimitrov hasn't played as well as we thought he would this year. That's for sure. Um, but also, you know, I don't know why I picked him. He's 0-1 in his career. But, you know, here, but you know, you never know. Like I said, I think I'm just rooting for a young guy to make a deep run. Yeah, I think a lot of us are. And they're both really fantastic talents. So let's hope one of them can maybe break a little bit. Hey, how about you at Wimbledon? You know, I read an interview with you recently. Maybe it was from a few years back. You said, I wasn't very good. My results are pretty thin. But you know your Wimbledon record's pretty good. Do you know what it is? I mean, I know, like, thinking back, I lost a bunch of matches that I felt like I could have won. You know, it's like I lost one one year to Volkov. What a weird match. I lost, like... Seven six oh six seven six seven six. Mm-hmm. I was like, and then the draw opened up. Uh, lost another one to Machir in the round of sixteen, and I had a real good chance in that one. So I, I had a bunch of third rounds and fourth. Maybe, jeez. If you I'm, get this all. Um, okay, let me see. You want to tell you how many matches? No, no. I'm, I'm just taking. <laughs> I should know. I mean, I, I think, see, you know, the older you get, you start to forget crap. You know, I used to never, so may, maybe well, don't worry, you 19 and 11. Oh, jeez. You nailed it. There you go. Really? Yeah. I honestly got it, you know. Fairly accurate. Uh, you're not as old as you think. So speaking of these Wimbledon um, these days, I think you only played on center court once. Yeah, in 1983. Right, and, and you faced McEnroe. I faced McEnroe on, I believe it was the middle Saturday. And I played my first two matches out on court 17. I think I won, might have won them in five sets. Um, but a mistake that I made that, like, I just was thinking about this the other day when somebody asked me, when I walked down the center court, I had never been on center court. I never even w- walked in there or whatever. So it was like, and I didn't realize... I don't even think I had grass court shoes. And, I mean, I was going to get, you know, roughed up by John anyways that day. But all I was doing was slip sliding all over the place. The court was completely different than playing out on court 17. Then I was supposed to play the quarters on 90 90 against Becker. We were first on center. It was on the, the, the second Wednesday. It rained for five hours. And then they all sudden about six thirty when it started to clear up, they go they changed the schedule and I went to court two against Becker and then all of a sudden damn he was serving big the court felt small, mm. so 
my only other time ever, you know, actually, I got to hit once on center court. Maybe it's the only time it's ever happened. In 99, we had nothing but rain the whole tournament. And Andre had not played on the center court. And the women's final was being played that day. And so I went into the referee's office and Andre hasn't played on center court. He even played semis and on court one and he played quarters uh, on court two. I said, can we get a warm-up on the center because he hasn't hit? And they said, sure. So we got to hit for 25 minutes. That was like the first time I hit on the court since 1983. With the right shoes. With the right shoes, and I still felt like, man, it, it felt different than every other court. It does, huh? Interesting. Well, you're facing, facing McEnroe and facing Becker, two of the best grass quarters ever. What's your take on those two? Could you even say which one is better in their prime on that surface? Um, completely different styles. Um, Becker, like, y- you know, big, huge surf, you know, and he, he would come in. And then had you know some you know different varieties. John's game like was one of the trickiest ever because you just felt like everything was happening so fast. He could return and come in on you. He'd uh, you know hit the slider. He just take time away from you. Uh, both geniuses on the surface, but completely you know different styles. But two guys that you know, especially if you didn't feel that confident on the surface, you were gonna have tough days against those two on the surface. Yeah, I can imagine. Um, one thing we didn't talk about what um, is the women's draw a little bit, and I wanted to mention a couple things. One is that all the Americans are are tucked in it's very strangely into the lower half. Serena, Sloan, Coco Vandeweghe, Venus. Saw it. Yeah, one loaded section there of Americans. You, you know, sometimes that happens. You, you know, you you look at it. You, you wish it would. You know, as many as we have, they'd be a little more spaced out. Um, I still think um, I need to see how Serena plays the first week to see where she's going. Um, on my pick, you know, I, I sat there and I looked at the ladies' draw for a while. I was like, who am I going to pick? I I got my French Open pick, right? I got three of the four, right? I picked Halep to win. So I looked in that top section and I started thinking, you know what? Why not? Why not three-time champion? So I picked Kvitova to win it. Cool. You know, I, I, mean, I feel like that she's had a great year. She's been... I think she's two on the race to Singapore. Um... And this is a surface that, you know, the two things that she does really well, she serves and returns well. And I think this surface really lends itself to the way she plays. Um, so so I really like the way she's playing at the moment. I, I mean, she, I know she pulled out in Eastbourne with a little bit of an injury, so hopefully that was just a precautionary thing. Um, and I need to see how Serena plays the first few matches to kind of see if, like, all of a sudden... Because I actually think at the French... Had she not got hurt there, you know, who knows how far she was going to go because she was getting better every match. That's all you can ask for, you know, when you haven't played a lot. True that. And a player I wanted to mention that you didn't is Sloane Stevens because when I looked at the draw, I was trying to kind of parse it out and get my winners and losers. I saw her as a big winner. She's kind of tucked into a section uh, that doesn't... I can't even name the names that she's facing right away. I mean, and, and I just want to get your comment on how well you think she's playing, how well she did in Roland Garros, and overall, what do you think of her big long-term future? Do you think she, she's on the, the track to higher ground right now? Um, she played amazing last year at the Open in the summer. I, I thought all of a sudden that was going to be her impetus to all of a sudden take off. And then the craziest thing is that she didn't win a match for a while. And then 
amazingly, like, you, you watch her play at Miami, it's like, whoa. She like a bit of a streak shooter. Like right. when she gets hot, boy, she can really play well. And I watched the the whole uh, the match when she played against Georgie, and somehow you know that one of those matches that like you kind of remember, like she kind of escaped to get through that match, and then as good players do, she got better every match. And I tell you, after that first set, you know she was up a set and I thought she was going to roll in the final. Um, but you, you know what she does really well. She's a great counterpuncher, moves really well, um, and I really like to watch her play. But kind of interesting now at the top of the women's rankings: Wozniacki counterpuncher, Halep counterpuncher, Sloan Stevens counterpuncher. Three of the top four counterpunchers. Kind of unique with all of the, you know the power players. The return of you know players that kind of use their guile, use their legs, um, you and. I would say Sloane has a little more power than you would think, but she just, you know, you're you're not sure when she's going to unleash it. But I like watching her play. Cool. Last question. So I know you got to roll along. We're all busy at this time of the championships. Um, It's about Novak Djokovic. I'm going to do it in true or false format. True or false, Novak Djokovic is on the rise. We'll have a major under his belt by the end of the season. That's a tough question. It's... um... You're considering it, which bodes well for him. Yeah. Um, I got him, you know, probably about at the lowest as the third favorite. Um, I really like his draw. Um, I was surprised that he didn't win Queens. I, you know, all of a sudden the way I saw him play there, I thought, okay, he'd have beaten Chilich. Actually, beat Chilich, I believe, the first 14 times and I lost to him two straight. Um, Did have the match point, though. Yeah. And, and same, I, I would have given you 20 to 1 that he doesn't more 50 to 1 that he doesn't lose to Chechenator uh, in the in the quarters of, of Roland Garros but right. that guy played great um, he's still not anywhere near the level that we're used to seeing him at but I think he's getting better um, can he win one of the next two yes um, he, but like I said he's still nowhere near that we're, we're used to seeing him at but I think he kind of reminds me a little bit right now of Andre in 98. Andre had this unbelievably down year in 98, dropped off the cliff, comes back in, in um, 98, has a really good year, except for didn't peak for any of the majors. And then it, it, it took another year that he got his ranking up that 99 he started to play a lot better. I kind of get the feeling that Maybe Djokovic will be a little bit like that. That maybe he'll get his ranking back, and then maybe in 2019 he'll make his ascend in majors. But you know, the guy is plenty good enough. For all of a sudden, he you know he gets hot. It would not surprise me if he won this tournament. It's not like, wow, you know, he's he's coming from nowhere. But I, mm-hmm. I mean, I think on the betting favorite, I think he's the second betting favorite. Um, but I do think it's a you know. The, the more I watch him, the more that, like, his movement is starting to get better. It still wasn't as sharp as it, we'd seen it, and the serve still can get better. But he's getting closer. I mean, that doesn't exactly answer <laughs> your... Yeah, if, it wasn't I mean, true or false. But no. Um, <laughs> it was a good answer. I enjoyed yeah, it. And, 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 well, the one thing's for sure. When your ranking is lower, mm. you, you, you know, you have tougher navigation earlier in the tournament. And then... You know, the the thing that when you know that Djokovic is ready to rock, he beats guys two one and one. 
he rolls guys because he has that kind of game. Same kind of like like Andre. When Andre all of a sudden, when he was ready to roll, he could route guys. Right. And Djokovic has that same ability because of his return, because of his serve game. So we're not seeing that yet. So I do think that that's a big thing for him when you look up there and you see a 2-1-1, and 3-2-2, when he thumps guys. And then that's when he's at his best when you feel like that you hope to not get crushed. And that's what he was doing between 11 through basically um, the French of 16, you know, and especially 15, 16. I mean, he was annihilating guys, you know. And I think that once that comes off just a little bit you know you you come out of the tunnel you're not three zero down you know so and anytime that you've scorched a lot of guys and you're a little bit down all of a sudden guys ooh, you know maybe yep. i got a shot yep the wind to tell your kids about and so that's that's what tennis is you know you earn the equity to be up three zero in the tunnel it takes you a long time to get that all it takes is a few losses and guys all of a sudden say, geez, this guy's not invincible. That's how tennis is. And the only way you get that air of invincibility is by beating guys badly. Yeah. Cool. Thanks, Brad. Um, wanted to thank you so much for stopping by. Enjoy the championships. And we'll be following along on yeah, ESPN. Buddy, uh, of the last 35 years, I've only missed one year, 88, when I had ankle surgery. So that's it. And every year that like I come. So yesterday was the first day. Or no, or, uh, Friday when I came. I kind of stop, look at the gates, and like, kind of don't take it for granted that, man, this is such a special way. This is a cathedral of our sport, and it's just fun to be here. It's unbelievable. Thanks, Brad. Take care, buddy. Imagine that. Playing John McEnroe on Wimbledon Center Court and wearing the wrong shoes. Well, pretty damn cool either way. Stepping onto that court and mixing it up like Brad Gilbert did back in the day. Special thanks to him for joining me for a nice 20-minute spot. And special thanks to our next guest, Reem Abuleil of Sport360 and Wimbledon.com. She is an intrepid journalist that's been on the beat for about seven years now. Does an incredibly good job. If you don't know Reem, check her out online. Go to Sport360, Google her, and keep up to date with all the good stuff she's doing. Uh, let's step right into our interview today. We covered a bunch of topics such as Wimbledon qualifying, which she covered this week for Wimbledon.com, and also Nick Kyrgios, who is hoping to have a breakout Wimbledon. Straight to the interview now. Hey, so we've got Reem Abuleil here. I'm learning how to pronounce her name properly, which is quite pleasant, actually. Um, and if you're a tennis diehard, you know Reem's work. She's been with Sports 360, I think, for since 2011, and now you're on the Wimbledon writing team. So before we get started, tell us a little bit about your roles this week at Wimbledon. So yeah, I joined the Wimbledon digital team, which is awesome because I have so much respect for the work they do, and it was nice to to do something different. But I'm also still uh, working for Sport360, also filing a few pieces for Tennis Australia. Uh, I've got this Arabic online show that I do. So yeah, I'm doing a bunch of different stuff. Oh, no wonder why I, every time I see you out here at Wimbledon, you're running around like crazy. You keep yourself busy, huh? Yeah, I don't think I have any other mode. I only know like 100% mode and, and I enjoy it. I, obviously, Wimbledon's a great place also to get content, to, to talk to a lot of people. I just love how it's spaced out. You go to Orangi, you get to speak to coaches. and So it's one of the slams where I feel the most comfortable covering. Yeah, 
It's, uh, if you guys don't know Reem's work, you really need to check it out. We've been following her forever on sport. The stuff on Sport 360 is what introduced us. So quality stuff. Um, so I know last week you did a lot of coverage of the qualities, which I thought was really cool. And people cover it all the time, but I think you guys covered a little bit more in depth than I've seen, and there were a lot of great stories. Can you tell us first? Can you tell us a little bit about Roehampton? Because I haven't gone over there. It just looks like this crazy, chaotic grass court like mess. Um, can you tell us a little bit what the scene is like? Well, I this was only my second time at Roehampton. First time I went was two years ago because uh, an Egyptian player, Mohamed Safot, was in the final round of qualifying, and I was like, I have to go there. Unfortunately, he ended up losing in the final round. But this was my second time. And it's actually a combination of chaos and calm. I don't know how, I'll tell you. It's a huge field, huge field. It's like almost, I don't know, several football fields combined or something. Uh, soccer, not football. Yeah. <laughs> but anyway, it's huge. And all the courts are stuck next to each other. Um, it is nothing like Wimbledon. It is completely the polar opposite of Wimbledon. Like players would be lying on the ground before their matches because there's no place for them to be. Um, the the warm-up and warm-down gym is like in a tent. The media center used to be in these tiny, like, caravan-like things, and now uh, the media center is a tent, which was, oh, okay. which was more comfortable. The team is super helpful. So it was the reason the, the coverage was good is that really the same team that handles the media here, a group of them were there and they were getting us all the players. So they have all these runners waiting for the players getting off the court. Mm, um, the courts, cool. Yeah, the, the courts are really like stuck to, next to each other and you can be standing in one spot and just looking around and following so many matches at really? once. So. How many courts are in play at the same time? Oh, that's a difficult question. Um, it looks like 20 or something. It's a bit less, I would say, probably. But I do remember that every time they were giving us the order of play, I'd look on one side and there's already a lot of matches. And then I realized that there's more matches on the back side of the paper. So there's a lot, but I wouldn't, don't remember how many they were. Um, and yeah, the, they start with the men a day earlier because they try to give them a day off before they have to play best of five because here the final round of qualifying is best of five, which is not the same as other slams. So that's why like the men play Monday, Tuesday, Thursday, whereas the mm. women play Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. Good stuff. And there were some cool stories. I mean, I followed some of your articles. Of course, we were all following Jeannie Bouchard and Vera Zvonareva, two uh, former Wimbledon finalists qualify. What else? Tell me about what you felt about those two. What are their forms like? And uh, what else did you see out there that was interesting? Well, uh, Jeannie did well, did very well over her three matches, I have to say. They had her on the main, so they kind of this year had one court that was kind of like a main court oh, that had court. some stands, because usually that's not the case. Usually they used to put the feature matches of the day next to a small like hill where people are just sitting and can right. see it. So no, this time... And maybe it was the same last year because I wasn't there, but two years ago that wasn't the case. Um, this time they put Jeannie, I think, every single time on that main court. Uh, she did really well, and she didn't really want to speak. So I felt like it was kind of like she was really focused. Mm. Like, she didn't do press because it's not mandatory. So if the the players coming in, it's actually nice of them to come because they don't have to. So with Jeannie, she, she refused to come to press after all her matches. Uh, and I think that the one thing she did say on the on-court interviews that she felt like she earned it more than if she had made it by her ranking. Obviously, her ranking now is down to 190-something, I yeah, think. Yeah, that's crazy. So though. I think it was... I, I actually had a feeling she was going to qualify because her matches in qualifying for Birmingham, if I'm not mistaken, were not bad. Mm -hmm. And I think she's building up some form. 
Uh, Vera is an interesting one because uh, she's just playing because she loves it. I mean, her daughter was with her, her family was with her, with very relaxed atmosphere. She just wants to play. And she was like, I don't care anymore if I'm on the big stage or the small stage. I'm just doing it. I never even planned to come back. I really love talking to her. She said some really interesting stuff, even about Serena seating, because I asked her as a mother like what she thought about it. And she's, she said something very interesting. Because I told her a lot of people feel that it's unfair to Dominika Sobokova right. not to be seated because she was going to be the number 32 seed right. and then bumping up Serena, obviously. Um, and she said, well, you know what? Serena's absence from... T- and I'm paraphrasing, obviously, but she's saying Serena's absence from the tour while having her child allowed other people to win matches, to have higher rankings, to do all that. So it's give and take. Right. And, and I didn't think about it that way until she told me that. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I love talking to Vera. She seems really relaxed. Very happy for her that she qualified. Uh, caught my eye, Claire Lou, last year's yeah. Wimbledon junior champion. Yeah. She did really well to qualify. What do you like about her game? I like that she she's, she doesn't have a big game, obviously, and uh, she has got variety. And I liked her attitude because I spoke with her and I did a piece for Wimbledon.com on her and Sofia Zhuk, as both of them were former Wimbledon junior champions. Mm-hmm. Uh, she's just delightful. <laughs> I love talking to her. Um, and I and it's also very impressive to get the wild card into qualities after winning juniors and then going through, through those three matches in Rohampton and qualifying. I was surprised Marta Kostuk lost in the final round. She didn't make it. But obviously still super young. I mean, she turned 16 during qualities. Very emotional player. Very deep. Lots of thoughts going on. (laughs) She's managed by Ivan Lubicic. And she said that after having some poor results on clay, she did really well in Stuttgart. And then she didn't do well after that. She said she went to Ivan's place and spent some time with him practicing and stuff like that, and and that she feels like she's out of her funk. So and I, and she had this huge match in the second round of qualies where she won ten eight I think or nine seven or something in the third. It was right. a big battle. So um, yeah, I like what I'm seeing from her. Yeah, we'll we'll see more of her in the in the near future, I'm sure. Um, well, moving on to main draw, let's see, big presser today. That was probably the biggest presser was Serena Williams. Um, she talked a little bit about the now infamous Deadspin article. Did we learn anything from that press conference today, or did it just make us more curious? I think the one thing that what she was not asked directly about, and that's the one thing that's missing, is why is she being targeted, or why does she believe she's being targeted to, to get tested more than others? Uh, what we learned is that she said she didn't know that she was getting tested more than other Americans, mm-hmm. that she found that out from the article. Uh, she also explained uh, that obviously USADA have the right to show up outside the hours, but that doesn't mean it's a mistest because basically there are certain hours where they're supposed to go. And she said that she they showed up 12 hours earlier. Right. So so that's something that wasn't very clear, I think, from the article in terms of just timings. Yeah, there's a lot of stuff going on there. But I think the setup of a press conference is not made for follow-up questions. So it's you can difficult. ask, it's difficult, you know what I mean? There's a moderator who, who picks and chooses who gets to ask, and you put one question in, and you barely get the chance to ask a follow-up. So very rarely do you do that, so... It was difficult because with Serena, especially, there were so many different things to talk about. There was her seating. Was she happy with it or not? There's obviously, she talked a lot about being a mother and all these things. And then also just coming back to Wimbledon after not being here last year. And then obviously that. Mm -hmm. I think we need to 
it's interesting to know the numbers about these things, but then we found out from Roger Federer that he was tested seven, that was insane. seven times, right? <laughs> Sometimes this that. month a lot, like just last month, right? Yeah, that was crazy. So, I mean, obviously, once you see that and know that, that Roger Federer was tested seven times last month, Serena's five are not insane. You yeah. know what I mean? But, but only once in 15 years in Dubai. Well, we're getting off the subject, but yeah. No, it, you're right. There's a lot to talk about. Exactly, because Roger's main thing was, uh, I'm not happy that there's inconsistency in different places in the world. So he says in 15 years he was tested once in Dubai, which is crazy. <laughs> as far as I know that in Doha, there is a special like testing center with WADA, because I went to the opening of that testing center one year. Mm. And Doha is a 50-minute flight from Dubai. So even if Dubai doesn't have the facilities, Doha does. So I'm kind of shocked at what he said, whereas he says that the, the guy who tests him lives in the same village in Switzerland, so he's, he can show up anytime. Yes. It sounds like a very arbitrary situation. It does. It sounds a little crazy. Mm. Any theories on why, if hypothetically they were targeting Serena, do you think it has to do with her comeback injuries? Because she's out of action so long. Is that is that typically what a doping agency would red flag say? Well, this person's coming back from a pectoral injury, which we all know she had. I mean, I don't know. I'm just look. I'm, I'm not. Yeah, I'm not an expert on this. I did cover a lot of cycling at some point, and I was trying to learn all the time about when people are tested. But I am by no means an expert on this. But it's understandable at the end of the day whether Serena's ranked 181 like right now or whether Serena is number one in the world once she's about to come back, when she's in the middle of her comeback right now. It's yeah. normal to be tested. How much is too much? I wouldn't know. If anything, maybe Sloane Stevens isn't being tested enough. Maybe, you know what I mean? She... Like maybe it's the other way around because like I said, I was surprised that Roger said he was tested seven times. If anything, these should be made public all the time and live. Like I know that the ITF released them by like quarterly or something I'm not really sure every every now and then we get this email from ITF yeah. or something saying oh by the way this is the report on the number of tests but I feel like a lot of the players want this information to be public so many players Rafa Nadal said it a million times Serena just said it today just publicize this stuff yeah. it's fun it would be nice We'd all it would be, be nice to know you know and then you can see actually if Roger spent three months in Dubai and he's not getting tested, there's a reason. Like, this is something to flag, you know? Mm -hmm. I'll move on a little bit. You, you were excited about a couple of Tunisians who are playing day one tomorrow. Tell me a little bit about that. Yeah, so in the men's draw, there's Melik Jaziri, and in the women's draw, there's Uns Jaber. So it's quite cool, usually, when there's two Arabs for me to cover. Yeah. Uh, the Egyptian Mohammed Safwat lost in the second round of quali, so he didn't make it. It's cool because Uns got a wild card. Uh, into Wimbledon because she won the 100k in Manchester that's a big one to win that's a big one to win especially first of all she didn't drop a set she played amazing and at the same time she kind of was in a funk before uh, that period so like the first six months of the year did not really go her way compared to last year last year she made the third round at French Open was the first Arab in a very long time to actually win a match in Islam and then she was the first Arab woman ever to make it in the uh, to a third, uh, third round of Islam so so compared to last year, her ranking dropped and stuff like that. So it was, first of all, a big ranking boost for her because she really needed to get closer again to the top 100 because she had dropped out. Um, and at the same time, uh, she told me today that she was motivated by the wildcard thing. She's like, I knew that historically players won those big ITFs before Wimbledon got wildcards. 
So uh, it was pretty cool, and I think it's pretty cool of Wimbledon to actually care about the results, irrespective of nationality. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like this is a Tunisian girl, won a hundred k. It's it's she she earned it, and uh, so I think that's very cool. Her her game is very good for grass. Yeah. She obviously plays a lot of drop shots and lots of variety. She, her serve is not bad, um, so she likes it. Mm-hmm. Last year was her first time, and she played uh, Svetlana Kuznetsova and lost. This time she has a very very winnable first round because she's playing the Swiss player Victoria Golubic, okay. and she beat her twice in the last three weeks. Uh-huh. So she beat her in Manchester on grass and beat her in Ilkley on grass. So it's kind of funny actually that she drew her again. And uh, Malik Jaziri plays Jared Donaldson. And he's had a fantastic year. Um, Dubai was a big breakthrough for him. Tell me a little bit about him. He kind of saved the Dubai tournament because Dubai is usually used to having Roger and Andy and Novak and it's usually like a loaded draw for a 500 and then this year none of these players were there and uh, Malik made the semifinals so all of a sudden all the Arabs and Tunisians living in Dubai were showing up to the stadium every day and they were featuring him on the in the night match every day and it was he really did save the tournament and I think it made a big difference with him he beat Grigor Dimitrov in the first round and it was his first ever top 10 win right. and one and something clicked for him because just a couple of months after that he made, he made the final in Turkey in the eighth, uh, Istanbul I think yeah so um so he made the final in Istanbul which was his first ever ATP final lost that to Tower Daniel but it, he's been doing great he, uh, he's did, 34 Yes, he is 34. He turned 34 in January, and so that, yes. And that was his first 500 semi, I believe, as well, right? It was. So, so everything is a first. For, yeah, like, it's, it's great. At that age, it's amazing. Exactly. I mean, for him, he keeps saying that he doesn't feel his age because he, he was almost away from the tour for two years at some point because he had knee problems in his 20s. And also, like, he keeps saying, I never used to work hard in the past, and he's the first one to admit it. And he's like, so I'm working now. I'm making up for a lot of time. Cool. And who's he, who's he drawn? In uh, Jared open? Donaldson. Oh, you mentioned that. Mm. Jared's tough. That, that could yeah, be a very nice Yeah, it could nice be match. a long one. It yeah. could be a long one. Could be a great one. Cool. And uh, last but not least, I wanted to hit on your recent piece for Sport360. You talked a little about Nick Kyrgios. Mm-hmm. Um, you spent a little time talking to him, and it sounds like he's pretty sanguine about his hopes here at Wimbledon. He has played very well. Mm-hmm. He has demonstrated some of the things that he's been criticized for over the years, his immaturity. Mm-hmm. What's your take on where he stands right now? Well, first of all, I need to thank the Aussies for letting me crash their roundtable with oh, him okay, because okay. it was local press, but like there was just a few journalists and they let me join, so that was nice. Uh, Nick is sounding like someone who's very focused. Um, I We all know that that focus doesn't mean it's going to stay because sometimes he loses it but he sounded very very focused very confident he was like I asked him do you feel like a contender for the title and he's like yes I definitely do and there was reason for that yes he did have that incident in Queens and he got fined for it which <laughs> which I thought was fair to be fined and whatever but beyond that if you look at the way he's been playing especially after being out for a long time with his elbow injury yeah uh Sammy's in Stuttgart Played a great match against Roger Federer. Seems like every time they play each other, there has to be at least two tie breaks involved, and that was the case this time. And then semis in Queens, lost to Marin Cilic, who ended up winning the title. So actually, he, he lost to the eventual champion in both tournaments. And in Queens, there were like two matches where he hit in each match 32 aces. I know. Back-to-back um, matches. Back-to-back matches, like the second round and the, and the quarterfinal, he did that. Um, so... 
with when his service clicking, he's brutal on the surface. I mean, he's he's made for the surface. Yes. And what I liked specifically about what he said uh, the other day is that he says that at Wimbledon he always looks ahead. He looks at the draw, looks for his seeds, finds out like oh does and he says like does that guy know how to play on grass? Da, 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 da. So already he feels uh, he looks ahead and maybe loses his focus. Whereas he said this time I'm only looking at my first round. Dennis Istomin is a very difficult opponent on grass. He's very comfortable on the surface. He's beaten Djokovic in a slam. I'm not taking this for granted. I can easily lose to Dennis, so I'm just focused on him, which is not something I necessarily have heard from Nick before. And I love that. I love that he really believes in his chances. Mm -hmm. And the hip problem he mentioned, which is there's always something with him, but probably not a big deal, you think, if he ends up getting deep? He said it's not a big deal. You never know, because Mm -hmm. I feel like also he's still learning to know more about his body because he just started working a few months ago with Ash Khan, uh, a fitness and conditioning trainer. So I feel like that's new for him because I feel with Nick before, he used to get injured, doesn't deal with it properly, doesn't know when to play, doesn't know this. He was very confident about the hip. He said it's there, but it's nothing that's hindering his performance at all. And he says he's rehabbing every day. He's getting treatment on it every day. So, And when he was asked by one of the journalists if he's up, if he's ready for best of five, he said, absolutely. Mm-hmm. I have no problem. So, you, you think Wimbledon, Wimbledon needs a deep run from Nick Kyrgios? I think it would be pretty exciting. I think that from happened. that quarter, definitely for me, he's the most exciting. I mean, he's with Djokovic and team and Zverev. It's a loaded quarter of all, like if you look at the draw as a whole, that's the loaded one yeah but i definitely feel it would be very exciting if he comes out of that one and then plays rafa and the semis i think he yeah. has Ra- it would be rafa and the semis right yeah uh, yeah because yeah. they're bottom yeah so i think that would be very cool yeah t- i think it's been 12 majors now without a quarter final for nick so it's, a, it's about time to yeah i think it's been since the 2015 australian open correct yeah he had two or three at that point i think right two it's, yeah he has two we thought it was i mean he was asked normal. about that because actually linda pierce was an amazing australian journalist she asked um very eloquently, but like when you broke through here four years ago, beat Rafael Nadal as a 19-year-old at Wimbledon, um, did you think that after making that quarterfinal, you were going to right away have your another breakthrough um, and, and go even farther? Or has it taken you longer than you expected, you know? And and he was very honest and, and he thought about it. He's like, maybe a little bit, but then I made another quarter and I made a few fourth rounds and he's like, it's very tough. He said, he made a very interesting point. He said the seedings help the big guys like Roger and Ruff and all these. He says they help them so much that in the second round, but by the, by in the second week, by the time they get to the fourth round, they've barely broken a sweat most right. of the time and they're full throttle. And he says that makes it very hard for the guys ranked around the 20s to so actually fights. make an impact in the second week, uh, which is interesting. I, it's not. It doesn't necessarily apply to everybody, but it's the way he he explained it, and that's why he feels it was difficult. Um, but listen, he's saying all the right things. Whether or not uh, it materializes for him this slam or in the next one or the one after, I feel that it was very positive signs from Nick. Yeah, definitely. Cool. Well, Reem, I want to thank you so much for your time. No worries. It It was great to chat. Thanks for having me. Yeah, and we'll uh, talk to you down the road. Cool. Thanks much. No worries. Well, I hope you guys feel enlightened because I know I do after doing those interviews with a couple very special guests. 
That's going to be a wrap for today's edition of the Lucky Let Cord Podcast, a Tennis Now production sponsored by Tennis Express. I want to thank you all for listening and wish you a happy Wimbledon. Check back often throughout the fortnight as we'll be producing these podcasts every day. Thanks for listening. 